Welcome back to the broadcast, first one of the year. Let's have a great 2024. Episode number 86, today's podcast is Mark Best. And I can tell you it's going to be the best one so far this year, I think, actually. Yes. Um, Brought to you by Chef Notepad as always. Check that out. Helps you out in the kitchen, Chef Notepad. And also Tim Adams Coffee. Check that out as well. It's a great blend and a great bunch of people there at Tim Adams Coffee. If you want to try it, head down to the Northerly Street Markets in Brizzy on Sunday morning. Talk to John. He'll whip you up delicious Tim Adams Coffee. Okay, well, let's get into this with Mark Best. Mark, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Mark Best. Everyone knows who Mark Best is. You've had a, a colourful career, but you don't want to talk about your colourful career, do you, today? Um, look, I, I think, I, th- I think, uh, yeah, look, the, acc- the accolades, etc., are well documented on the, on the web. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. look me up and I think you're very generous saying that I'm well known. Um, if you know, you know, if you don't, you really don't. So, yeah, that, that is a little yeah. bit like that. We were just talking about that as we were walking through the shed. Some people were like googly eyes at, at Mark Best and other people had no idea who you are. So, um, I think in the food industry and that's what we're, we're here talking about. Most people do know who you are and. When I, you know, look at your website and um, do some googling of you, you have won a lot of awards. You've you've worked in loads of different places, and um, you know, including France, including you know, to, to get your craft. And you didn't start till you're 25. So you've mm. only been in there, what 15 years, is it? You've only been cooking. <laughs> <laughs> no, so so you started late, uh, but. But tell me, what brings you and every other chef um, uh, in the country up to, up to Brisbane? Um, look, we'd, we'd uh, live, you know, 35 years. Thank you for your generosity. But um, we'd live 35 years in, in Sydney. Um, but in, in terms of my career, um, you know, we've owned our own businesses for most of that time and uh, sort of transitioned out of them. And uh, we just look for a bit of a sea change and uh, came up here and uh, the Koloa Hotel, as I quipped, is uh, the gateway drug to Brisbane. And we come here to the little James Street bubble and think, gee, Brisbane's really growing up and then realise that, well, yes, it has, but it's not quite the James Street hub. Um, but, yeah, we, we just moved up here and uh, son left home, that sort of stage of life sort of thing. And, yeah, nice. Yeah. Bought your puppy dog? the doggy he's living his best life and um yeah well, i just um ended up uh you know uh, speaking to the maloof family through um ty um yep. from any day group and ben and um said look at him a bit of a loose end and they said oh um carl at the, the kalal wants a bit of help with in-room dining and anyway i went in for a meeting and it turned out to be uh, a whole lot more of that, and so that's I found myself uh, as a culinary advisor to the hotel. Wow, you've obviously got lots of experience. You've done that to a couple of places in Sydney as well, haven't you? Um, when I Ritz Carlton was the one before yeah. that, so yeah. we opened the Ritz Carlton in Melbourne. So that was um, pretty significant brand to open in Australia. Um, so obviously, there's a lot of pressure with that sort of thing. But as you say, um, you know, overnight success with about 30 years experience. Um, and so you can bring, and, and I guess as a as a, a restaurateur and a small business owner, um, and a chef-driven, you know, fine dining restaurant sort of establishment for seventeen years, um, you build um, a hell of a lot of uh, skill because mm. 
you basically, when you're running this type of traditional thing, we were the only three hat restaurant that um, was self-owned and no partners, anything. So we did everything ourselves. So uh, double-edged sword, obviously. Mm. Um, no, no, not much cash flow and not much profit, but uh, certainly, but it also allowed us to make uh, very flat, you know, sort of decision making and we could just it could be just immediate response to things and that's what i think kept us sort of winning you know three hats for 10 years running and winning you know the world's 50 best in this tiny little restaurant so that is, i think that might be the mm. the secret isn't it yeah that, that size because you know like you know through history there's lots of different sizes of communities that, mm. that work the best mm. and um yeah i think that by maintaining that agility to mm. be able to make decisions on the well, spot. Well, it's when like you, you're, you've, um, gives you a, a, you're nimble, you know, mm. and I think um, the only thing is probably ironically is uh, once you become more successful, that slows down because you want to sort of become more protective of that status. I know what you mean. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, you, you can get on the back foot a little bit, but I do notice that you, uh, you you're very good on your socials and you're, mm. you're not shy and the other day you're, you you thanked or talked about Renee and what was happening on with Noma and left a message there you obviously know uh, yeah look uh, uh, lucky enough to have been involved in sort of chef symposia and that sort of more international chef community through that uh, and I've met a lot of incredible people I've met my heroes and um my peers, but also, um, you know, uh, people on the way up. Um, and um, this is a, a big lesson for all chefs is that um, your reputation is the only thing you, that you really pack with you other than your knife roll. And that um, when you out there represent yourself as best you can and um, be a good person, because um, you're going to come across all of these people later on in varying degrees of success. Yes. And um, some of them are very successful indeed. And so I've been lucky enough to, you know, have made friends with Rene and uh, been to uh, Japan with Cook It Raw and with Anthony Bourdain and they filmed a show, No Reservations, on that. And Albert Adria was there and David Chang and, you know, just, just Ben Shuri. And so I've stayed in, uh, you know, um, forget the prefecture, but uh, down south. But it's just an incredible experience, you know, and that's, I think I'm... Uh, yeah, lucky enough to have have made these, you know, relationships over the time. And so Renee's sort of now Noma's transitioning into a new phase after incredible success mm. over decades. And, um, you know, so it was, I was honoured to be able to contribute, you know, just yeah, say wow. hello. We, we were lucky enough to supply them when they were in um, Sydney. Yeah. Uh, they found me through Ben Devlin. Mm. And um, he actually wouldn't even tell me who I was presenting for. And he said, can you get as many products as you can that you think are cool or awesome or different or new or fresh or delicious and bring down to, uh, where was he, uh, Paper Daisy. And yeah. we presented all this wonderful stuff. And But we didn't know who it was for. Mm. I'm thinking, who's in the country? Right? Mm. And then all of a sudden we got the gig out of Brisbane. Tell me how I did that. Don't know. I was flying to Sydney twice a week Amazing. to make sure that he was getting all the good stuff. So it was very... very and what, you're bringing down a lot of the stuff out of... Oh, tropical fruits. Yeah, some some was from up here, like macadamia mm. nuts. He mm. wanted green macadamia nuts mm. for this dish he did quite mm. thin on the mandolin, mm. and it was with um, you know that gelatinous fat stuff that comes off like snapper when you cook it, mm. and that that was like a soup. 
Some uh, collagen. Yeah, that mm. collagen soup mm. with the macadamia nuts and some sort of green oil. Yeah, I remember having that. that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So mm. that is actually the... Oh, I can remember. The, there was watermelon. There was a mango on the menu, which we had to store because it was towards the end of the mm. season. I had to pack up a heap and store. They were obviously busy, so we could sort of work at in our set menu. We could work at how many they were taking. It was, it was pretty interesting um, that, I mean, it really shone a light on uh, that sort of, I guess, that indigenous ingredients. A lot of people had talked about it. A lot of people had talked about it before that, but the, he really, you know, walked the walk yeah. um, in terms of in terms of that. And uh, it was pretty interesting, the response to it. Um, I think when the food is is that edgy and you're pushing it in terms of your craft and, and into the art space, I mean, not all of it is, is delicious. Um, yeah, there's there's a, a solid intellectual component to it. Um, one of my friends, and this is was quite interesting for me, um, said that um, she'd eaten there and she'd eaten at Noma everywhere, but um, it was her association with the flavours he bought, like tea tree oil and all of those things. Mm. She said for her it's like eating the contents of an old man's shaving cabinet. <laughs> and that was because of their association with our Indigenous products with uh, medic- uh, medicine. Yeah, right. Vicks Vapor Rub and, you know, tea tree oil and old shaving stuff and all of those sort of menthol, um, yeah. eucalyptus, all of those things. And Rene just saw it as another ingredient. And so you're eating this stuff that you're used to rubbing on Gray's knees and, you know, yes. stopping bleeding Me- after a shave. Elgating mosquitoes yeah. off you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's really just a really interesting response to ingredients. yeah. I randomly bought two paintings at an auction once and got them in the um, Indigenous art and it was beautiful. And it wasn't until I got them back that one was medicine leaves and one was uh, bush melons was mm. the title of them. I just liked the colours and the shapes and when I got it home. So, yeah, very foodie, love it. Um, who else? Um, so, you, yeah, um, uh, Anthony Bourdain, that must have been a, a thrill as well. Uh, yeah, it was um, It was good. He was just embedded in that, uh, in that event, the Cook It Raw event and... Uh, we um, we uh, went up, it flew up into Tokyo, and uh, then went down into the southern Japan and uh, stayed in Ryokan and things. And then we basically went around and explored uh, the ingredients of that region. Went out uh, on the fishing boats, caught uh, yellowtail or kingfish, local stuff. Um, went most incredible food. I mean, uh, Japan really laid it on mm. for the group just to show us the best of it. Eating live crabs and you know, John Dory all still alive and flipping from the boat and that, it was that fresh, so they just really pushed pushed it out and then we came up with a, did a big uh, a big dinner, so. It's it's actually, uh, well, uh, my personal experience with Japan is it's actually hard to find bad food in a yeah. shopping centre. Yeah, like it is. The, where you mm. might think might be the bad stuff, it's brilliant. Their the, yeah. the, the, the whole philosophy on life. Um, Even the know, fast food. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just brilliant. <laughs> so yeah, I love it. I'm actually hoping to get over there. I was, I went this year. I'm hoping to get over again next year. Um, what about uh, Shane Osborne? He's a mate of yours as too, hey? Um, he is. Um, and uh, yeah, look, I've I've known him from for a long time. Um, I think you know Shane. You know, we were applauding him from here. I mean, he was a boy from Perth who went and got the first Michelin star for an Australian overseas. Mm. Or we didn't even have Michelin stars. So the first Michelin star for an Australian chef and he mm. got the second as well. Um, and so I'd always um, sort of admired him from afar and um, and um, we happened to meet, I think, at Gourmet Escape in, in uh, southwest of Western Australia and uh, got on like a house on fire and so... 
sort of kept in contact and did a couple of events together. And then when it came time, um, he actually chose me, like the recruiters for the Netflix, The Final Table. Um, they wow. came They came to him first and said, who do you want to work with? And he chose me. So that was flattering. And, uh, yeah, we just hit it off. I mean, we had this sort of bit of, uh, uh, you know, early Gen X, uh, boomer adjacent joke vibe happening, which we pushed, you know. <laughs> I love that explanation. That's brilliant. Yeah, so... Yeah. They're border, bordering jet dad jokes, but um, wasn't indeed. it wasn't his wife who insisted it was you? Wasn't it? His yeah, wife? yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah, yeah. So he, she's jumping between France and Hong Kong at the moment. Yeah, they've got a place over there. Little farm is beautiful. They got the farm. Yeah, yeah. We're lucky enough to send a little bit of product. He's actually getting some of these beautiful Queen Garnet. Oh, gorgeous! Next week. Yeah, yeah. Wow. But um, yeah, she did insist, and you don't deny her. So no, she's lovely. Tell me about the that competition and what went down in the television series. Um, I heard bad food and. As in, from the, that you had to eat while you were working there, or something rather. Tell me some stories about that. Uh, I'll be. That's for Shane's perspective. I, I <laughs> think, um, like him and I both, uh, I think we had a great time there. Um, we were actually uh, incredibly pushed. Um, I think it was the benefit of our collective experience that got us so far and allowed us to stay so calm i think it was it was pretty stressful even for us yeah there was a sort of a lot riding on it and uh, the competition was real um it took seven weeks to film but the competitive phases of it was actual you know there was a the blind components to it where you were really challenged you know you're being filmed i mean it's on a 20 million us production um, there's nowhere to hide there. So, mm. like, you really, it's quite a stressful environment. And um, and I think it was our sort of collective 60 years experience that sort of, like, really, really came to the fore mm. um, in terms of what we were able to produce, uh, no matter what ingredients we were given. Um, just, I, I guess it shows, the, without blowing my own trumpet, it shows that the craft is everything and um, that um, it's, a, it's a cumulative process. And... Uh, Time is is all you've got. Hard work mm. um, and uh, endless curiosity and time is 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 what you have to to build up build on that. And so even if we face with a brown log, which turned out to be cassava, you're able to sort of <laughs> decode it, decode it and, as, a, as a starch or a whatever it was. Yeah, and go okay, what I'm going to do with this, and like really objectively yeah. assess it, and then break it down and turn it into something, you know, something good. So yeah, I I, I love that about. The art of being a chef is that you know we're gonna cut some lovely stuff here, and I can't wait to get your opinion from mm. uh, up north Queensland. Um, tell me about your philosophy with um, you know choosing fruit and vegetables and seasonality and stuff, particularly at the Carlisle now. You know, like what, what's what's important to to you with that? And um, actually, just before you do that, I, I'd love to. You know, you said about those collective experiences that gave you the ability to adapt in that competition. Mm. Tell me about some of the failures, because I'm sure you have to have them, as we all do in business and life, um, that, that has really set you up to, to be better. Oh, I'm, my, my entire career in life is defined <laughs> by my massive failures. Um, it's, it's, as you know, in business and life, um, it, it's complex and yeah. we're, we're human and... Um, we think we're doing the right thing, and off we go. And um, we're driven by other, other things, and uh, so can sometimes go down the wrong path. But um, you know, life comes along. In terms of just business, um, running a fine diner, running it from scratch, not really knowing, not really having the skills, business or or cooking, or 
you know experience in restaurants you you dive right in and um, it's absolutely driven by naivety and inexperience um, which allows you to come at it in a fresh way um, and I think it was easier back when we did then we started that restaurant in 99 um, it was much easier mm. to do that type of thing that was pre-social media which only really began to bite into the industry about 2010 2012 even before it really started to sort of change what the rest um, I'm talking about Instagram mm. um, yeah that is the platform, which was that was which is when that sort of came in and really started changing industry so that's not that long ago um, I was always been an early adopter of all the technology I've always been interested you know as an electrician in my previous life so always interested in technology and things and I'm a photographer even before any of this so that's sort of driven well that explained your driven my aesthetic and all that sort of stuff so so the failures yeah um, we uh, 2000 Olympics came along you know um, and we thought everyone's like yeah here we go you know and then that was the first time we nearly went broke um, mm. as the, that bought nothing so it's mm. a little bit of a salient lesson here for uh, the Brisbane, Brisbane people coming yep. up be careful yeah, it's a bit of a fall off on the other side as well. Usually, isn't uh, it? it's like a it's like a steep cliff. It's like yeah. a bungee drop <laughs> <laughs> without the without the rope. Um, and people think it, it, it it's too there is weak. A, there is an ongoing effect in terms of infrastructure it's in itself. But to build a business around that, just make sure that you know your your costs are not ongoing after mm. it stops, and make sure that you are actually part of um, the inbound traffic because we weren't. Um, they all went out to the stadiums and came home exhausted, ate hot dogs and whatever they did out there, came back exhausted, slept, did that for two weeks and left. Mm. All of the Sydney siders said, fuck this, we're out of here, we don't want to put up with this. Mm. Um, Sydney siders are arrogant in that way, so they just left town. And um, so the place was a ghost town. So yeah, we, probably... were, we were a startup business and with very little cash flow, <laughs> that was... That was the first thing, and you know, so and then along came. Oh, what else happened? Uh, Two thousand and eight financial crash. You know, mm. so we've been through all of these cycles over seventeen years. You go through all these different business cycles. Um, we then, I guess, in terms of our accolades, getting into the uh, finally getting into the top at, at Gourmet Traveler, getting our three stars or four stars, whatever they did, and. Then our three hats for 10 years running and then it comes time when your business is entirely geared around those accolades it's tied to those accolades and your business has really morphed into servicing that market that mm. is around there and then when the third hat is is uh, dropped or taken away um, we lost probably 30 percent of our business overnight wow yeah, and so after that, um, it really took a while to transition out of that business. Um, but on that, I should have closed the doors on that day because mm. from that point we were unviable. Yeah, and that's just the nature. That's just the nature of that type of business. So, kids, be careful what you wish for. Mm. Oh man, you're, yeah, you're just laying it out nice and clean. You have to. You have to. That. You have to. You have to create an essential business. You have to understand who your audience is, and you have to service your audience. If you start cooking for the critics and cooking for 
the noise that surrounds the critics. It is good for business, uh, but it's it's a it's a saccharine high. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Absolutely no nutrition. So you can have a you know you can get a lot out of it. I mm-hmm. won't stretch the metaphor any further because it'll fall over. But um, yeah, you've you've just got to be careful in terms of the business. Have a longer term outlook on it, and um, listen to your customers and what they're talking because they're the ones that are going to support you through all of these vagaries in you know business. That's why we did the podcast. We try and listen to our customers. Hey, Scott. <laughs> I, um, one of the dishes which we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, that parsnip dish, I just wanted to touch mm. on that again because that story and that photo, which I'm, I might want you to send to me so I yeah. can put it on story or something. But tell me a bit. Uh, it's probably not your most exciting dish, but I really love what you did with that. Uh, can you tell the I, listeners I, I demure. That? I think it is my most exciting dish. <laughs> is it? Yeah. Okay. Tell us about that, that, that uh, dish. Look, I'm... Um, intellectually arrogant enough to think that you know I'd say again this is another another lesson in how not to run business I said that 50% thought I was a genius and 50% thought my food was absolute shit and I was quite happy with that <laughs> ratio <laughs> but I was just really pushing really pushing the limits of what I thought dining dining should be and what uh, Australian food should be and what an Australian food what Australian cuisine, you know, what it what it represents. So I have still have strong opinions, and they continue to get me in in trouble. Um, you know, around luxury luxury ingredients, the use of the luxury ingredients, that type of um, uh, I guess the sort of flash flash dining, where using luxury ingredients mm. instead of seasonal potentially, or seasonal or yeah, just good quality quality craft. They can go together, but um, you know, I decided, and I, I was at that time. I couldn't really compete with the bigger boys, um, the key restaurants, the Tetsuyas, um, the Rock Pools, everything. They had much bigger organisations, and things are becoming quite protective. They were getting growers to grow just for them. Um, you know, small batch stuff. It was becoming protective. They were sort of becoming the gatekeepers mm-hmm. of uh, all of these ingredients and you find yourself unable to compete. There is always a fashion component to dining. They're doing all these tiny vegetables and just nowhere. You just can't get them or you can't afford them. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't, you got like 50 cents a piece for a tiny radish. I mean, you just no way that you can justify that. So it took me a while to work that out and I thought, you know what, like, it started to really make me angry and I always worked best when I was angry, you know, so I was just thinking about this, the, 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 I'm having the wrong conversation, I'm, I'm going for this unattainable thing, I shouldn't even want this, you know, so, mm. you know, so instead of uh, getting what I want, you know, you have to be happy with, uh, you know, wanting what you've got. Mm. So I thought, look, you know, as a chef, I should be able to go, I should be able to go, uh, to the supermarket, and I said we're all looking for this rare stuff. I mean, we're which we, in a, in a way, it was sort of I found it dishonest because you're saying this is yes rarefied and everything, but the public can't get it, other chefs can't get it. I'm the I'm the I'm the genius. I'm the gatekeeper, and I found it dishonest. Mm, and so I, like I said, that. I went to the supermarket and I said I should be able to go and I'll get donkey carrots, bulk beetroot. Mm. Parsnips and Domberg was on the telly at that stage, going on about how parsnips were only fit for pig food and all that, and that also made me angry because it's good, good food, well grown, 
pigs like it, but there's good food for people as well. Mm. And, um, you know, and then Farhan Adria, that something resonated with me, you know, that um, he said that all ingredients are equal. And that was a turning point for me, that little that little phrase. And again, he was pushing against the use of caviar and lobster and foie gras and things that he said are unattainable mm. ingredients for most people uh, as a sort of a crutch um, for, for chefs. And so he said all ingredients are equal. And for that, it was a revelation for him himself in terms of, and for me it was as well. So it meant for me that a carrot is equal to caviar, is equal to lobster, is equal to foie gras, is equal to pheasant, you know, or a parsnip. It's just what you do with it. And as a chef, that's when the craft came into it. And so I found ways of decoding these things. And one of them was the parsnip and there's a few. And again, I didn't uh, invent this process. The, the Aztecs, the Mayan people had invented it thousands of years before. Nixtamalization with the use of calcium uh, in the water for the corn to break down the cellular structure. And then Adoni at Mugaritz had done it with his fallen fruit and uh, he had um, soaked it in this lime, soaked fruit in this lime solution. His famous dish, um, the forgotten apple, it creates this sort of uh, layer around it. it, looks like it's almost rotting fruit or fermenting fruit. And you cook it and it creates this leathery layer around it and inside it's almost like an apple puree. Mm. And so you could apply this to many different things and we applied it to parsnips and uh, then we fried the, the inside would fall out and just leave this leathery sort of like a, a, a cone shape yeah. and then we would fry it and dust it in icing sugar and create almost like a waffle cone and for the insides um, we turned into ice cream. Um, so again there was that sort of nose to tail approach and there's all several all these different philosophies coming through you know from Fergus Henderson nose to tail book and like using everything eating the problem all these different philosophies that sort of resonate with me coming together in this one dish and then so we're creating this um this absolutely delicious parsnip and it was delicious and that was the overriding principle it had to be delicious and at the end of the meal no matter who it was in the restaurant what station in life I loved it because they're all sitting there licking this ice cream <laughs> at the end of the thing so I absolutely love that nursery food was sort of coming back in but I just loved this idea you know it was so engaging with people and it, and it touched them sort of on an emotional level as well it took people it disarmed them like bringing this out as the last thing this parsnip ice cream and they sat there and it was such fun and yeah. they just so it you know it, it it was like one of the most sort of important dishes it was also one of the most expensive yeah, I imagine. <laughs> so I was just thinking of how much work goes into that. Had to go through it. Drove our, our greengrocer absolutely insane. Um, that, that getting the right easy. size parsnip. Yeah, he was searching through bags and bags of parsnips to get the right ones, and then we would have to peel them down to get the all even. Yeah, and then we, you know, frying the process was endless, but it was it was worth it, and that was one of the signature dishes. So. Mm. Yeah, that was a nice and dish. So um, you're up here in Queensland. What uh, have you found? Anything uh, super unusual? Or well, we're about to try some. Yeah, let's try it. But um, um, you know, look, I'm, I'm. I think it's it's absolutely fascinating for me. Um, just the absolute depth and breadth of Australian produce, and you just see people think as of Australian cuisine as this monolith, but there's just such regional differences in it, either through culturally or, you know, immigration, whatever, or um, cultural differences. But that just that 
that long, long east coast, you know, mm. right from the tip, right to the right to the bottom. I mean, and as as you know, like in terms of seasonality, like you can't think of summer, winter, whatever. You just think of what's happening from the north right to the south. The seasons can be incredibly long. Yeah, um, from from cool climate areas up here. Um, right down to the tip of Tasmania, like the cherry season, for instance, can yeah. go for an incredibly long time. So, yeah, you're well, not worried about food miles. Yeah, well, that's yeah. right. If, if you like, for <laughs> yeah. like another great example, those mangoes are starting in Catherine yeah. and Darwin and move across to North yeah. Queensland and work their way down all the way to the here. Yeah. Um, and so, and it's the same with actually watermelons, mm. tomatoes, mm. those things. So, we'll get watermelons out of the territory at different times and avocados, which you know a lot about. Um, mm. Start, you know, they, they start in the far north Queensland with the shepherds and move their way down. Yeah. Before we know it, we're, we're at December and then we're back over in WA, WA. Right in New Zealand. Yeah. Mm. And then that ends and there's a little bit of average avocados through mm. February where we're trying to switch to mm. shepherds and uh, then we can't get anyone off shepherds because by the end of it they're so delicious yeah and then we've got to try and get back people back get on house yeah and, no. uh, it's uh, lots of fun I did see your avocado dish too that you did somewhere with uh, I did add the sound off but I watched it come together it looked delicious I did a bit of um, yeah I did a bit of work with um, Delcado family yeah. in Western Australia with the avocados and um, so yeah developing sort of unique dishes with a fine dining bent. I think the one you made it talking about is one stuffed with tiny peas. Yeah. Okay. And again, that was a little bit of subterfuge. The, 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 the peas weren't actually peas I'd uh, gone through. Um, like edamames to me. No, about yeah. even tinier than that, yeah, the right. size of uh, pinheads. And this is so never trust oh, Instagram. Right. Um, so they were like literally um, sugar snaps or snow, oh. snow peas. And I went through a couple of kilo of them sticking <laughs> out these tiny, tiny peas. I know. You know what happens then? Yeah. I get a phone call going, Mark's got this. How come we can't get yeah, it? We can give it to oh, you, but it's going to cost you nine dollars a pee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, they don't. Are you? I think. I think you're dancing under there. Are you? I think right. we can hear a little bit of noise. Um, yeah, it's 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 amazing uh, those those different dishes. But what I like about what you said then was that all fruits and vegetables are equal, and product lobster or 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 plums. Um, and I like uh, what we spoke about when we first you know got together. And about the simplicity and seasonality of these beautiful products, mm. and you know, right now we're in this beautiful queen garnet, which you've already been eating them. Mm, um, but you know how, how wonderful they are. What are you going to turn this queen garnet into? You told me. Um, so this is one of my favourite plums, and I think it's just because of that that absolute the, the richness of the flesh. Um, they're incredibly sweet. Um, I love how firm they are, but how you know they just hold up in terms of you know you'd enjoy this that you don't. In terms of logistics of transport, they really hold up to it, but they're so incredibly sweet and just that vibrancy of that deep, deep purple flesh. Um, we made this um, dish out of them, and again, um, one of the things is, well, how do you, how do you, how do you better this? You know, how do you better this piece yeah, of fruit? Yeah, yeah. How, how do you, how do you elevate it? Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. So we um, basically got a perfect ripe uh, queen garnet plum, and then we used a, a, a blowtorch and we um, burnt it and took the skin off. That's the best way of uh, peeling ripe fruit is with a butane torch. Um, just because of the intensity of the heat, doesn't make it mushy underneath. And um, yeah, then we ended up with this with this um, beautiful flesh and we uh, cooked it a little bit just to soften it. Um, we made uh, basically a bread um, uh, made from dark licorice 
dark licorice, rye bread, um, molasses, um, made a type of bread, and then we would uh, roll it out into these big shards, and uh, we basically coated the coated the uh, that ripe plum in these shards, which replicated the burnt skin, which we'd just taken off. Um, so that was a dish, and then we made a caramel from uh, Fisherman's Friends. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I, I, once Fisherman's Friends, we tagged Fisherman's Friends in on the post and they got all excited about us and sent us a lifetime's worth of Fisherman's Friends after that, which is quite hilarious. <laughs> Do you know a Fisherman's Friends ask, Alan? I don't. A uh, little lolly that sort of clears your nose almost, oh, doesn't yeah. it? Or is that, they, that's yeah. quite intense, aren't they? Your grandma, your grandma probably handed yeah. you one and you went, oh my God, what was that? It yeah, tastes yeah. like poison. But, yeah, um, definitely had some as a child. It's super yeah. intense. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that's amazing. And that's what I always say, like, what are you going to do with this particular fruit? And I might actually cut this abbey for you, which you hadn't had before. I mean, it's always the, this is always the question, you know. I, need a spoon, I mean, actually. when you say that everything, everything is equal, it depends what you want to use it for. I mean, if I want um, a super ripe, uh, if I want a super ripe papaya for breakfast at the Kalal, oh. obviously. Don't worry, we're chefs, we can work it out. Yeah. If I want a super ripe papaya for um breakfast at the Kalal, obviously, you know, I don't want a green one. Yeah. It's not going to suit my purpose. But um, as you know, you know, if I am expecting green papayas for another use, you know, I want green ones and a ripe one's not going to suit my purpose. So, yeah, yeah, so product for purpose is what we call that here. Yeah, and so it's important for the chefs to, I think, have that dialogue, have that relationship directly with the provador. Yep. And don't rail against them when the wrong thing turns up. Perhaps you haven't communicated what your purpose is and what you want it for. So not just price point, but what you're going to use it for. Yeah. Let the, let the experts, you probably all people, people, <laughs> um, give you, you know, give you give you something that's fit for your purpose. It is a changing environment too all the time. It's like one day you can be promised something to this last second and all of a sudden it's like, oh, that truck driver had to stop because yeah. of his hours or something rather so that's down the road but we can't get it until tomorrow now so i mean we're, we you Actually, know and i think you have to accept uh you have to accept you know i i think both both sides have their yeah, yeah. Have, have their issues in terms of business i mean you're you're at the behest of of nature um chefs as well but chefs are the behest of their customers um they also need that consistency, but mm. um, also I think we can be accused of being inflexible sometimes. So, yeah, I think it went through a thing, a phase of like, oh my mm. god, the expectations of a product that grows is very difficult. And yeah, yeah. and you'd kill yourself doing it, and you could do it for a while. Was that a sustainable model to try and continually do that, or what I like and I think what you know uh, is what you're about as well? I believe is that celebration of the simplicity of. This beautiful seasonal mm. queen garnet plum, for example, mm. and if we can just continue to do the carrot or the whatever it is, and let the product speak for itself, because you know, as you know, that beautiful carrot dish that Ben does at Agnes is one of my favourite dishes mm. as well. It's such mm. a simple thing, mm. but super delicious. And um, I think if we can keep celebrating like that, and that's where I believe it's heading. Have a little try of this uh, Abbey U. Now, yeah. towards the edge, it can be a little bit um, astringent. Uh, no, sort of like. Um, Sticks your lips together a little bit, like oh. um, that's delicious. Yeah, so so that to me, all I'm thinking is that you do that and then mm. you put it on something, but you just burn it with your your torch. It can be gone a little bit riper as well. It's 
probably just a little under with the ripeness, which is only got. That's the, delicious. Yeah, I mean, I um love uh, one of my favourites is nightingale persimmons, and once the the grower told me, I thought we were getting rotten ones. He said no, and he explained to me, no, this yeah. is how they are when they almost turn to jelly. That variety, yeah, you know, love it. Love and it. I thought. What's this? You know, send me this. Anyway, it says no. This is it. And so once I understood that, you know, and then we were confident enough. Then, and it is about confidence in cooking. Is I can't I can't do any better than this. And so uh, we would just take it off the take it off the skin, and we'd serve that as a pre dessert. Yeah. Um, with uh, four different types of freshly ground pepper. Um, and just on the on the persimmon, um, and that that was the dish, you know. So you've got to have that that confidence when the nature gives you that perfection. You've just got to step back and mm. let it speak for itself. Yeah, have you done much with jackfruit? Um, not really. We don't. Uh, given that you know, most of my career's been in Sydney. I haven't. Yeah. I've worked in Asia um, quite a bit, so I've, I know what it is and what other people do with it, and durian and that type of that whole family of things. I, I would love to, um, you know, explore that with you a little bit more mm. in the future um, mm. because there's different varieties of them and there's some that are just excellent to work with from yeah. a you know, processing point of view. I mean, and it fits in with, you know, what we want to do at the, the Kalal as well and I'm, I'm currently sort of documenting the brand pillars for the F and, whole F&B operation about, um, you know, just one of these accolades, the number 12 um out of 50 in the world's 50 best hotels and best in Oceania and um, sort of everything came together and that's only been uh, going for five years but so we're here now just saying well what's the next five years looking like and um, putting in those that sort of structure and those um, sort of I guess redefining those brand pillars um, to to continue to continue that that rise. Yeah, you've got a great platform to work with. Then, yeah, that's incredible. Sure. Yeah. So it's, you know, one of the things is recognising our time and place in terms of the ho hotel and um, how do we, in terms of the F&B operation, what does that look like in terms of our bar program, our, our wine list, our in-room dining, uh, the lobby bar, etc. How do we use ingredients? How do we express our ingredients at the Kalal that makes it... Uh, a fundamental Kalal experience and not representing any other hotel. Mm. So doing things doing things differently but still engaging our customer base, etc. So ingredients is always that that thing and so my focus is always on ingredients and using things like this, uh, jackfruit, etc. Things that, that tell a story, things that um, that sort of reinforce our vision by using you know using Providors, producers, farmers, fishermen, yeah. uh, looking for local where we can find local, yeah. um, where the quality meets and quality and volumes, you know, meet our requirements. Um, and that you know, it's it can be difficult, but you know, once you get into it and get into that mindset and establish that culture, um, and that's the biggest thing is re-establishing the culture in somewhere that doesn't have it. Of using that mindset, and once it becomes, you know, it's become second nature, and then mm. you become, it's a unique offering. It becomes safe, and you are yeah. very reliant off of your suppliers to get the right product to you, so you can, yeah. you know, do the the simplicity of making it happen. 
uh, in turn into a, a great experience. You know, it's a symbiotic relationship like yours with your yeah, producers, etc. Yeah, yeah. And it's a partnership. And um, yeah, it's just about being honest with each other and about your 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 needs, your mm. setting yeah. your mutual needs commercially yeah. and and culturally. So it's important. Yeah. No, I. I, I you know, I've really enjoyed uh, our start of our relationship. It's been fantastic. Um, try that one. That's a purple princess. It's different to a mm. normal red dragon fruit. Yeah. I love these. They're beautiful. Amazing. Sounds like you're going to do wonderful things at the colour. I love them too, and I have some too. Might have to put these on the menu. Yeah, well, these come down once a week, I believe. Mm. Peter and Alison Solaris from mm. Fruit Forest Farm. Mm. Uh, they are podcast number, I reckon, seven or something. Tells a fantastic story. Um, I would love to take you up there if you're, if you're ever up for that yeah. little, little trip. Mm. It's truly a, um, a magnificent experience. Mm. <laughs> mm. So yeah, I find these little gems. Sometimes you know, um, yeah, it, it is hard to coordinate all, but um, they're, they're great. And also these big boy eggs from Yellow Monday. Mm. I can't wait for you to go home and tell me how well they poach, mm. along with their their new range that we just launched. Plug plug, but um, yeah, super friendly to the animals. The chickens out there, I've never seen them so happy. And um, just do all the right things, and mm. that's what I want. How does that, how does animal welfare and where things are coming from, does that come into play in the industry or for you? Uh, what, what's going on there with, with, with that? Is there anything there? Yeah, of course. You've, uh, you've, you've, got, to be, you've got to be a good person. Mm, and uh, being, being a good person is uh, about being, being kind to each other, yeah. kind to animals, kind to the earth. Beautiful. You know. Um, that that's about it. I mean, I think. Look, um, a lot of a lot of the stuff and the words, like you can see on the box, organic, mm -hmm. and its branding becomes part of people's identity as well. Um, I'm confident enough in my own identity that I don't need to latch on to this this sort of stuff. Um, I do believe in it, and I do believe in animal welfare and the quality of the ingredients, the quality of their life. Uh, reflects the quality of the the product that comes out of it, mm. um, and sustainability being not only about um, the ground and climate change, etc., and animal welfare, but also um, sustainability of the people that are growing it, um, generational sustainability in terms yep. of financially, etc., but also um, them recognizing the fact that they're making their living on the land. So I tend to go towards people who are farmers who are good custodians of the land that they've been giving, you know, that we're here for a short time mm. and um, the earth will always be here. So when they say that's the end of the earth, it's not the end of the earth. The earth will be perfectly fine. It'll probably be the end of us. Oh, the earth, earth is going wins. to, earth is earth going to recover. Wins in the end. <laughs> I, I think that we fast we'll be, we'll be spat out, and we'll yeah. be just a little, a little, a little fart in time. You yeah, know? yeah. Well, yeah. And yeah. But um, you know, it's it's certainly I I t gravitate towards uh, farmers and producers, fishermen who are 
wonderful custodians because they understand they understand where their living comes from, where their livelihood where their livelihood comes from. Um, the, they understand that sort of I guess that that circular Buddhist almost um, mm. principles around treating things with respect um, brings good things. You yeah, know. beautiful. I like uh, we're we're probably similar ages, um, and I like. Um, that because you know a phone call is not a strange thing mm. and uh, I find it quite difficult when people only want to text and communicate mm. like that I, I love the fact that if you want me you ring me or you will send me a photo as well sometimes but yeah you know just the phone call thing I, I the communication is so important I think we've, we've all got a bit I think yeah know. technology I think like it's um, one of the things you know like people are using apps for ordering and stuff now I go to a certain extent that's great mm. but um, we're we're losing with some of my other providors, like we've lost touch with actual humans. So it's hard to build the relationship. Um, and especially not only when things go wrong and they do, mm. uh, but when things go right, you know, you want to say, Oh, you know, fantastic. There's no, within this technology, there's no portal for that sort of like, uh, real time feedback, posit mm. positive and negative, which is important. Yeah, all parties, and that's probably that perfect size of um, mm. you know a business or mm. a, or a restaurant. You're saying before, um, and when you have got that perfect size, when you can still have that yeah. communication. And I think you know, I know I listened to too many podcasts, as you mentioned to me when you first met me, but um, you know that that perfect size community. I think it does help that work, and you can you know th that's why I like to divide them up. Like you know, yeah. you, you work with Glenn, say so, you know, like keep that. You know, he's got his you still need that. You still need that human element. You always need that human element. So mm. no matter, like you, obviously, your business is very successful and logistically it's uh, incredibly impressive. But it's Thank still, you. you're still one man. So when you turn up, you're yeah. you're a man. And, you know, it's about that relationship. Yeah. And that's incredibly important to businesses, you know, because we're we're businesses that are dealing with humans on a daily thing and we need other humans to support us in that so Beautiful. it's not just about um shunting boxes around and i think that's dispiriting for chefs i do know um uh chefs in sydney especially um who are going back just uh to to cutting up whole beasts because it's completely uneconomic but just for their engagement of their chefs yeah because opening boxes and opening cryback bags is not what the industry is about and no. so you know it's about learning in that craft and and it's especially that's why i also hate plastic on you know i hate boxes of flowers in, in little you know plastic boxes with little flowers and not everything plucked it's it's completely devoid of anything of beauty and nature you know mm. i think when i first went to arpege in uh, work there in 98 uh, in Paris in Lombasade, and I remember the thing I was most blown away with was um, that he had uh, incredible gardens up in north um, north of France, and they would just get on, they'd be picked, and they'd be in front in Paris within an hour and a half of being picked on the TGV, and uh, turn up in these little Renault vans, just the most incredible boxes of beautiful, of beautiful produce come out. Um, even the ducks, they wouldn't be in plastic bags; they would be wrapped in pink tissue paper, feet yeah. on, heads on, yeah. you know, all of this, the butter would be in 
beautiful from Brittany, uh, salted, unsalted in these wicker baskets, again with the tissue paper. Just that degree of presentation. I mean, the, I think the French and Italians said it's bit, uh, um, they also, you know, do the same, but just that you've, you've got to stay in touch mm. with nature. And even when you're, even when you're providing that service of delivery, et cetera, you, you can't break that, that magic, you know, yeah, that yeah. veil. I'm forever know, so. telling drivers how important they are to, to, you know, that connection of that. But, and I, you've inspired me again. And I think, um, I think that's why we, why we were really, it was really important for us to have this garden on the roof. One, yeah. from an educational point mm. of view for the staff to mm. understand that when a lemon myrtle starts to flower, mm. there's not, a, the leaves mm. are not as good or, the, you know, they go through different mm. times so they get the seasons. But to be able to create that freshness, like Tabs is, is, is harvesting stuff off this, off the rooftop and, and around the place to make, you know, to get this amazing stuff. And I, I almost sometimes like, are people appreciating this as much as what I, I would have thought they might have? Mm. And I'm like, maybe not. But um, uh, because you've got also a gardener with Future yeah. Wild, Elia. We share a gardener. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we share a gardener, Elia, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful human. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I think you, you probably get it. And I, I, I do like to bring chefs out here and walk them through the garden just so they can I'm I'm a country it. boy, so yeah. I, I get it. And I I love country people. I love people that grow. They're incredibly clever and um, I respect them deeply and um, I've never lost that respect. So for me, it's struggling in a in a metropolis like Sydney, et cetera, you know, or Melbourne or wherever I am is to maintain that contact with those people and also maintain contact with nature so um, always trying to get things in their most natural form that I can that's you know commercially viable for me but also just for the for the spirit you know it's about yeah. when you're working in this industry it's about maintaining you know so the joy of of what you do and when you're just opening plastic bags and opening boxes and you know opening tins which a lot of our industry is there's it's joyless. It's just a commodity. You could be doing anything. So, I've got to say, I've got to show you a video after this because yeah. we talk about what we're doing here and the joy of mm. real food and what mm. it's actually all about at the end. I've, mm. I've got to show you this video. It's actually our induction video for the staff, mm. and we've just completed it after a million years uh, mm. uh, <laughs> with um, Matt. He's amazing as well. Um, You've got a fantastic story, fantastic philosophy, and it actually is a real privilege to work with you. I look forward to experimenting with you. I look forward to doing a trip up north if you're up for that. There will be a time. It's actually March coming up. I think Ben's going to come with me yep. as well. Um, to just go and, and, you know, it's two days of trying tropical fruit and hanging out. I'd um, love to. So we'll do that. Um, but these are a couple of questions. Some of them you may have already answered, so I might skip through them. Um I think you've told me how you create inspiration. Um, any books you're reading and you recommend? Uh, I haven't read a book for ages. <laughs> Good. No I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm still, I'm still, because I'm in the recipe development phase. I've been going back through my old, uh, old baking book, etc. So we're just developing the pastry section. So yeah, going back through my old, uh, reading some of my old Ducasse books and things, which are of a passable, passable. Uh, ability reading French as long as it's a recipe book um, but um, oh yeah right okay yeah, yeah. Right. I've still got my Crackman and Kaufman and all yeah, those yeah. books at home as yeah. well I love them uh, what's the best thing you bought for under fifty dollars that you just couldn't go without uh, there'd be a bottle of um, 
<laughs> bottle of Sauvignon Blanc from Victoria the other day. It was incredible, Bordeaux style. It was amazing. Yeah. Okay, good answer. Uh, if you could put something on a billboard, what would you say? Um, be better. Good. What are you doing to reduce food waste in the kitchen? What one tip I'm looking for there? One tip? Yeah. Um, turning our green waste into worm farms, worm food. So, yeah, luckily you've got that beautiful garden. Uh, how do you sleep and is it a big priority to you? Um, it is. And, um, yeah, it's about, um, I think, about trying to be less elevated. So, um Use prescription medicines uh, when appropriate. <laughs> sleeping tablets. Not, not not sleeping tablets. No, go to the root cause. <laughs> right, yeah. Okay. Love that. Um, do you have a favourite fruit or vegetable? And if you had to pick one of each, what would it be? Um, would have to be beetroot for sure. And um, the nightingale persimmon, I think, would have to be my favourite fruit. Oh, sorry, Queen Garnet. Sorry, Queen Garnet. Um, Close second. Who, where do you like to eat in Brisbane? Where, where's your choice of restaurants? Can't mm. say your own. Hmm? Can't, Can't say my own. Nope. Um, I love to eat at Agnes. Um, it's just, it's the quintessential restaurant experience. Um, I understand why they've won the accolades. It's not just the good cooking, it's everything. Mm. Um, it's, um, they're incredible uh restaurateurs and um they've just they've just absolutely nailed it in terms of the vibe of the process the layered the layered as the layered nature to it even going to the toilets is an ex you know they've thought of everything and uh, going up to the bar etc that's that layering of the experience i think which is um so engaging might well be the same answer but what chef is rocking and rolling and really doing some good things uh, we'll, we'll stick with we'll stick with Queensland. Mm. Who, who do you think's really doing some good stuff? Um, look, obviously, uh, look, I'm good mates with Ben, so you know, straight <laughs> up. But you know, like he's just in terms of the the volume they put out and the the breadth of their organisation. You know, through Bianca, same same, even the bakery, um, like everything is just really on point, and so. I don't know. I don't know how they do it, but uh, just managing the team to produce that level of quality every day, I think, is admirable. Mm, I can't agree more. Uh, if you weren't a chef, what would you be, electrician? Hmm? If you weren't a chef, what would you be? Uh, portrait photographer. Beautiful. Mm. How has social media changed anything on the menu? Um, in terms of. In terms of marketing, um, everything is marketing, even the way I market myself. I'm fairly fairly careful. I, I set a tone that's uh, authoritative yet irrelevant. Um, so, but, um, you know, all carefully curated. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, that's, you know, I think it, it has changed things. Um, often technology, you know, comes... All change comes with good and bad. We lose something and we gain something. As long as there's a net positive, I think it, it's good. Um, this stage, jury's out on the on the internet, but I think um, you know it's been a net positive. Love that. If we, as long as we maintain democracy, we'll be fine. Do you have a favourite beer? Mm, look, I'm I'm an absolute fool for an English ale. 
traditional style. Um, if I was to choose a favourite, would be um, either a Heaps Normal or a Guinness. Oh, heaps Normal. Yeah, I love a Heaps Normal. I just think it's really weird. Like even though it's no alcohol, it's yeah. so close to the real thing that I've had two of them. I get a bit of a buzz on, like completely you, psychosomatic. Do you, do you feel the, Do you feel the bad results from it as well? No, no hangover. Yeah, yeah. But I do. I do find myself. Uh, there's such a close association with the product that I actually get a physical effect from it. Yeah, I, I actually, I haven't had a drink. Yeah. I haven't had an actual alcohol drink since March, and I know that I should have told you that before we became friends. Yeah. But I don't, and I will again one day. I'm sure I'll have a wine with you. But um, I'm just on them heaps normal when I do feel like a beer as yeah. well. They, they're do you have the same effect? Do yeah, you, yeah. Do you feel I, it? I, actually, I actually think I'll get the hangover. That's why I mentioned that. If I have two or three of them, I'm like, ah, oh, <laughs> average next day. So it definitely does something for me. Um, I talked about your biggest stuff. Um, oh, if you were 18 again, what would you do different? One thing, one thing you do different? Uh, move to a town where there were women. <laughs> <laughs> I, grew, I grew up. I've spent my 18th and 19th birthdays in a mining town and underground as an electrician. So, yeah. <laughs> What's your mantra? Be better? Hmm? What's your mantra? Good, better, best. Um, what's someone who's really in influenced your life? Uh, my wife, Valerie. Yeah. Didn't so, even have to prompt you. I love that. <laughs> no, she, she got me as a, a completely raw unit out of uh, country, Western Australia by that stage. Um, had um, long, sun-kissed blonde hair, believe it or not, blondish <laughs> highlights and... Uh, I don't know, she saw something in me, but um, she's really been my education. Um, and uh, I think I never never made it to university or anything, but uh, she's really been my tertiary education as well. So um, amazing partnership. So I think that's, um, and I've put her through the ringer uh, several times. Um, so she's a much bigger person than me. So Love it. Yeah. Mark Best, thank you for being on the podcast. It's been an absolute, absolute pleasure. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, mate. Thank you.